Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God, but he who was born of God protects him and, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful God, we give you thanks for your word, your word which is a light to our path, your word which leads us to life that's found only in you, your word which is the bread of life. May we feast on it. May we know life as we know your word. May your spirit speak to us and speak to our hearts this morning, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. You know, when the kids were getting old enough uh, in our house to ride bikes, you know, a constant thing I would yell at them, I mean, speak calmly to them. While I was uh, teaching them how to ride was, you know, look where you're going, right? Because when you start to look other places, the bike starts to follow that, and then you start to wobble, and then you fall over. Um, but they were only able to trust, to keep their heads up, to, to trust what was happening with their feet and the wheels, that they didn't need to look down and look at what was around them. They were only able to trust me when I told them to keep their eyes forward when they knew that I was right beside them, you know, running like a father does, trying to keep up uh, with his children, riding away from them, or, you know, there to help pick up the kids uh, when they fell over. You know, this help that I have you know, as I was helping them, this helped them to trust that their bike would work, that they could keep their head up, that they could actually just focus on what was in front of them, focus on where they were going. And uh, what the thing that gives us confidence to keep our, so the question is, well, what, what is that thing that helps us have confidence um, to keep our heads up in, in our daily living, to not get distracted by all the various things around us? And the, the simple truth is this, that if you have eternal life, that you have eternal life if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? This is the foundational truth that fuels our living. And in this final section in 1 John, uh, as we conclude 1 John this morning, I, I want you to kind of picture him as, as a father, kind of taking your shoulders, looking into your eyes and telling you to watch where you're going, focus. And you can actually do this. You can focus and you can watch where you're going and you can trust me Because if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. It's so sure that no matter what comes your way, you can be assured of this truth, that if you believe in Jesus, eternal life is yours. He's trying to assure them of this truth, to have them, that they might have assurance of faith. And and the assurance of eternal life is that, that thing that enables them to keep their heads up, to stay focused, to not get distracted. 
And there was much to be distracted by in this day and age that John is writing. But it's something that we need to hear desperately as well. Because there's, there's no shortage of counter voices in our world that try to rip our assurance of, away from us. Voices in our own hearts that question the truth and the validity of Jesus. Voices in the world that question, that chip away at, at our foundations and distract us from the, the old truths of scripture that tempt us to believe that you can find life in other ways. That cause us to question and turn our gaze to them. And John wants to leave you with this strong word that you can live boldly in this world with profound assurance of your eternal destination because you believe in Jesus Christ. And because this is true, eternal life is yours full stop. And here this morning, as he's trying to assure us of these truths, there's two aspects that he wants us to, to learn about this, that we can both have a confidence and a caution with our assurance of salvation. A fair warning, this is one of those texts where there's so many things I can't just ignore. So this will be probably a little longer uh, sermon than normal, but I didn't want to gloss over any of the kind of difficult, weird things that John often says, and especially says at the end of this text. So it'll be a little longer. We're going to look at these two aspects of assurance, confidence and caution. So first, we'll see the confidence of our assurance. And there's this kind of reoccurring phrase in this text that maybe you picked up on. He says, we know, you can know, we know characterizing the confidence that we have. And there's four things that he mentions here that we should be confident of if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And the first is what I've already mentioned, and it's also what our sermon last week was on, which is eternal life. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you can be confident that you have eternal life. He said that in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I think oftentimes when I read this verse, I read it wrong. I read it that I'm writing this to you so that you believe. That's not what he says here. That is what John writes in the end of his gospel that he wrote in John 21. He says he's writing the gospel account that we believe, but that's not what he says here. Now he is writing to the church, to those who already believe. And he is writing that they know that they have eternal life. He wants them to be assured of this truth, that they believe that if they believe Jesus is the Son of God, they will have eternal life. Be confident of this truth. Church, if you're here, if you confess, you can be confident that you have eternal life. You know, because we talked about eternal life a lot last week, I'm just going to say a couple words about this. But your faith in Christ means that you can know that you have eternal life. It's not a question. It's as sure as the breath is in your lungs. More sure. Have confidence in this truth. And this, this truth means that we can have confidence in this even when we don't feel like it. Even, even in our temptation to sin, even in our giving in to temptations to sin, our eternal life is sure if we believe in Jesus. Rest in this. It is the, the truth that gives us assurance and the, and the rest of these I know statements that he makes here are all rooted in this one. Because this is true, because you can be confident in eternal life and that is security, you, we can live in the world with great confidence and this confidence is shown in our prayer. This is the second confidence we see here is we, we find confidence in prayer. Actually, this ties in really nicely with our gospel reading this morning. But he says this in verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. This is kind of a wild statement. But he says it plainly. He says, look, so you can have confidence in your prayer. Because you have life in Jesus, you can pray boldly, 
And you can trust that he will hear you and he will answer you. That when you ask according to his will, he will hear and act. You know, statements like this about prayer, statements about like what we read in the gospels and just prayer itself was one of those things that's a, a little mysterious for Christians. It's one of those places that many Christians, including myself, sometimes struggle. And some can read this kind of stuff and they can take it to mean, you know, the, the name it and claim it kind of world. As in, I can just name something and, I, and whatever I want and God is obligated then at that point to give me whatever I ask for as if he works for me. Um, you know, which is problematic for so many different reasons. You know, others go the opposite say and say, well, if God is sovereign over all things, which is what we believe, we believe God is sovereign, uh, then that must mean that prayer is pointless because God is just gonna do what he's gonna do regardless. So what's the point of even bringing requests to the Lord? And these are kind of the two sides of the, the pendulum that we often swing. But I think both miss the point of what prayer is and what John is trying to say here. First, there's this, there's this kind of intimacy here, that this promise that God will hear you. There's a relationship there. There's a connection point. I think prayer is first and foremost about this connection point, that we have a Father in heaven who longs to hear from his people. Also, what do you, what do you see here? It says that our confidence is that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, I think theologians help us distinguish between what they call the, the secret and revealed will of God, right? The secret will of God would be something that he hasn't spoken of. Like, for instance, the day and hour that he's going to return, that's, that's secret. We do not know that information. Um, uh, the revealed will of God is something that he has spoken to us. He's told us what he wants. You know, things that he's commanded in First John, right, that we ought to love each other. His revealed will is what he's told us to be true. Right, to love our families, to raise them in the Lord, to, to, to serve before being served, etc. All the commands in Scripture are his, for his people are his revealed will. And, uh, and, and we can't pray according to the secret will of God because it's secret. We don't know it. And so our prayers are supposed to align with the commands that God has given us in Scripture. To pray according to these things. You know, one great example of this is actually what you just find in, in the Lord's Prayer. Where he teaches us how we ought to pray. If we pray these things, that God's kingdom would come on earth that is it in heaven, that he would forgive us, that we would forgive others for his provision, and etc., we should pray with great confidence that he will hear us and he will answer those prayers when we pray them. There's a bold confidence in John's writing that I do not want you to miss. He's saying, listen, because you have eternal life, because you are secure, your person is secure, we can have confidence in our prayer. He kind of alludes to this more at the end, but it's, it's about our union with Jesus. Because we are in Jesus, united to him in faith, God the Father, his Father is now our Father, and we can go to him in prayer, and he hears us. He hears us the same way he hears Jesus pray. And so we, we ought to be a people marked by boldness and prayer who trust that the God who made the heavens and the earth, who holds all things together, that God actually hears you when you pray. Do we believe that? Do we believe that anyone actually hears us when we pray? Do we even think about it? Or do we often just kind of say the words that we know we're supposed to say, then we go on, not sure if anyone heard us or not? He's telling us he absolutely does hear you. You know, there's this great story about Martin Luther. He had this uh, assistant who was, he was leaned on heavily to help him with writings and things like this, and uh, he was on his deathbed. But Martin Luther still needed his, his help to get his work done. And so he refused uh, to believe that he would die. And he prayed to God. He said, listen, you cannot take this man yet. I still need him in my life. You are not allowed to take him from me. And, uh, and God actually answered Luther's prayer. And the man lived another four years, uh, helping him, serving him. 
And it's kind of this, this wild story, but the point of it is, is this, that how often do we pray so timidly that we would never know if God answered our prayers or not? How often are our prayers to, to the Father so timid that we would never even know if they were answered? Pray boldly. Pray specifically. Pray God's word back to him. Make your requests known to the Lord and he will answer them. That is his promise to you. Now, of course, there are some caveats to this. Uh, you knew this was coming, probably. This doesn't mean that they're answered instantly for us. Uh, one great example of this is like if we pray for safety in our travels, we, that can't be answered instantly because it's a, it's a future thing, but it's as if we catch up to our prayers in real time one day. It also doesn't mean that our prayers are always heard and answered in the way that we think they should be. Uh, because we don't always know God's will for every circumstance and every situation. And God might choose to answer that prayer differently. But they will be heard and they will be answered, just maybe not in the way you expect them to be. But you can be sure of this truth, that he does hear you and answer you because you have life in him. He is your father. And because he is and because we have life in him, uh, when prayer isn't answered the way we want, we can actually be confident and trust God even with our unanswered prayers. Because he is a good father who wants the best for his children. And God desires his people to pray. So pray. Pray as if he hears you. And if you, if you need God to help, help you stop sinning, if you struggle with sin, pray. Ask God to help you to stop sinning. And be confident that he hears you. If you have rough relationships, pray. Ask the God who invented relationship to help you, to mend those things. If you have a rough time at work, pray. Ask God to help you. In every part of your life, pray. Be confident and bold. Praying as if God hears you. Third, the third confidence we can have is this. Equally as wild as prayer is uh, freedom from sin. We can be confident that we have freedom from sin. Uh, verse 18 and 19 says this. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You know, this is a, a profound truth that John is pointing out and a comforting truth. And we can be confident of this truth. That, you, that if you believe that Jesus is the son of God, that you are protected and free from the bondage of sin. So much so the evil one cannot touch you if you have been born in Christ. Though the whole world lies in darkness, in Christ, you are in the light, secure. I mean, this is one of those ones that's hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, you say they don't keep on sinning here, but I, I sin daily, you know? You say that the evil one doesn't touch you, but evil has touched my life in so many ways. Uh, so what is John talking about? Well, when it comes to the issue of, uh, that we first hear, that we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, you know, earlier in this book, John clearly says that, if, that we sin and that we all struggle with sin. And if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father in Jesus Christ. So clearly, he's not trying to tell us that we will never struggle to sin just because we believe in Jesus. So what does he mean when he says this? Well, plainly, in the language here, he's saying your, your life won't be defined by it. Uh, that, you, that you will slowly but surely die to sin and, and live to righteousness. That you will be sanctified, as you, which is to be made holy, as you continue to walk with Christ in faith. Yes, you will struggle with sin until the day you die. But his confidence here is that the sin will not win in the end. 
that sin will not win in the end. That if you're born of God, he will protect you. Because you are in his kingdom, you are his. Uh, And so even though we struggle to sin, our, our forgiveness is sure and we are protected in Christ. The second problem here that we see is that uh, sin still is in the world, and sin still touches our lives. And what John is saying is that, listen, although that evil still reigns in this world, and I, I don't have to convince anyone here that that is probably a true statement, although evil is everywhere, it can't pluck you from the hands of Christ. As John writes in his gospel, that we are in his hands and no one can take us out. No one can take you from Jesus. Your eternity is secure in him, it is like, like this, if this were an apocalyptic movie, everyone's contaminated, you know, walking around like zombies, um, you know, but inside of you is this antidote and uh, you can't contract the disease. That's what this is like, that all, although the realities of sin may touch you, they will not contaminate you, they are momentary. Your life is secure in Christ. How many of you had zombie, you know, reference in your bingo card this morning? There you go. Uh, but in these words that John is speaking, of here, they're they're reckless in a way. There's a reckless assurance that you can have if you believe in Jesus, despite circumstances, his grip on you is stronger than your grip on sin. His grip on you is stronger than the the grip of the world on you. That although temptation still lies at your door, your salvation is secure because it rests on the work of God that he did on the cross. Jesus is son of God, the king of the cosmos. He has come to rescue you from the domain of darkness and sin and death. And if you believe that Jesus is the son of God, you can be confident of this truth. Rest in this deep assurance that he does not let his sheep go. He can't because you're his. We call this, you know, in our doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, that those in Christ will persevere to the end no matter what, without exception. This should give you profound confidence in your life that whatever comes your way, that we are from God, that we are part of his kingdom, his kingdom that endures forever, his kingdom of life. This should give us great confidence to live, to put our sin to death, which leads to the last confidence you see here that we're given in our assurance of this eternal life, which is found in verse 20. It's his confidence in the truth. He says this, and we know that that the, the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true. And his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Kind of he, he ends this letter kind of summarizing a lot of the themes that he's been getting at, reminding them of the truth of what they know, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. He's come to this world to give us understanding of this truth, that we might believe, that we might be united to Jesus In faith, he has come to make himself known and we are born of this truth as we believe in Jesus, in Christ. Whatever is his is ours now. In him there's life. You know, there there were those in this day that were attacking these deep truths in the church that he's writing to. They were trying to sway the people away from the truth. They were saying, listen, I have this secret knowledge that you have to come to me and get if you want to actually know who Jesus really was. And John has sent him, listen, you've already been taught the truth that We're not keeping it secret. We are proclaiming it so that everyone might know and hear. So be discerning, he's saying. Reject false teachers and teaching against that which we have taught you to be true about who Jesus is. You know, just a note, you know, the false teachers that Jesus, that John is speaking against here, that he's battling in this day, weren't just other Christians who just disagreed on matters of interpretation and theology. They were false teachers who left the church and taught against the apostles' teaching that Jesus was God, 
that Jesus had come in the flesh, that he'd come to take the sins of his people on himself on the cross, right? This the simple orthodoxy that all Christians believe and proclaim each week and that we proclaim in the Apostles' Creed. So that, that's the people he is speaking against. And in the assurance that we have in Christ, we can be confident of these truths that the apostles have given us because Jesus has come into the world that we might know him. So hold fast to these truths, these ancient truths of old, that Jesus has made himself known in his life and in his witness of the apostles and in his word. This is true. This is the same word that we believe today. Our faith is an apostolic faith, meaning it's the same truth that the apostles taught. And in the midst of this deeply assuring kind of final message that John is proclaiming to the church, that kind of gives us the foundation for a life well lived, a message we need to hear amidst of the struggles in, this, in our battles in this world, deeply comforting, there's also this warning that comes along with it. A caution, lest they become cavalier about their assurance of faith. And this is a, the second thing we see here is a caution in our assurance, a caution in our assurance. Uh, you know, there were some, there are some that, that promote wild cavalier attitudes about our assurance of faith. You know, in the, in the doctrine of the perseverance of the, of the saints, in a way that can tempt God, it's like saying, listen, if no one can snatch you from the hands of God, then I can do whatever I want. Uh, you know, the, the word we use for this is a fancy word called antinomian, which means against the law, which says, listen, because my faith is secure, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to follow any laws or any rules. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Uh, and John knows the temptation of man to go that route. And he doesn't want the church to take its assurance of faith for granted. He wants us to grow in our assurance of faith, that we can be more and more confident. And so he issues two cautions here in the midst of this deeply assuring section of Scripture. The first caution here is caution against the realities of sin in our life. Caution against the realities of sin in our life. Verses 16 to 17, he says this, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, this is, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. You know, these two verses, as you can imagine, cause an insane amount of confusion. Uh, it's like, you know, like a lot of John's letter, it can seem even a contradiction to other statements that he's made about the nature of our believers uh, in Jesus as the Son of God. So what is John talking about here? Well, first, he indicates that there's two different kinds of sins, those that lead to death and those that don't. Um, and there have been several, uh, on several different theories as to what exactly he means here. And one of the problems for us is that John assumes that the readers know what he's talking about, and so he doesn't actually explain himself to us. It's not, not very nice of him uh, for us uh, today. But I, what I'm going to tell you is what I think is the most likely a scenario here. I think most likely this is an Old Testament reference to the sacrificial system where there was actually a distinction between two different kinds of sins, sins that were done inadvertently and intentionally, both of which could be covered by sacrifice when confessed, but they had different means to atone them. And so what does that mean for us here? Well, we have to remember the context and occasion for John's writing. Again, John is speaking about his opponents, false teachers who were once brothers, part of the church, but have gone out and have left the apostolic teaching about Jesus. Right, they've abandoned the way of life, embraced the way of the world, which leads to death and darkness. And so ultimately, John is speaking about those who once were members of the church, who appeared to be a part of the body, but have now become enemies of Jesus, enemies of the light. 
the, the sin that leads to death is this intentional turning from the, the truth. It's, it's not an accidental thing. And so there's two categories in the Old Testament help us. This, this is not an accidental thing. They didn't just accidentally reject Jesus. Like, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to say that. But they purposefully turned from him, left the faith. So the sin of death is ultimately the sin of rejecting the light, rejecting the source of light and life. And if you die in this state, there is no more help for you on the other side of the grave. I know when you, whenever you're talking about these kind of things, like sins of death and sins that don't lead to death, the sensitive souls in the room can start to get really worried about this. Uh, because we know our own hearts. We know that all of our hearts have propensities to sin. And uh, listen, if you are here in the room right now and you're worried about this, my simple question is this. Do you, do you desire to follow, to love, to pursue Christ? Then this is not speaking about you. You are not sinning the sin of death. If you are trying to serve Jesus, if you, if you love him and you believe him as he's given to us in Scripture... This is speaking about those who no longer want anything to do with Jesus of Scripture, but they've actually created their own way of life. And listen, there's another side of this. If that's you in the room, like if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, as he's been told to us that he is in Scripture, there's a warning for you. That turning away from Jesus as he's delivered to us in Scripture is the way that leads to death, not life. And the only way to life is found in Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Because, of course, everyone in this room still struggles with sin. This is what he says in verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So he says plainly, listen, not all sin leads to, to death. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that doesn't lead to death. This is the, the daily struggle with sin that we all have. Our daily drifting and wandering, our daily, our daily battles that we sometimes lose. So that the sin that leads to death is rejecting the Jesus of Scripture. And the caution for you as a church is this. In the places that you struggle with sin, do you repent? Do you turn to Jesus to be your life? We're called to cling to Jesus lest we end up like those who reject him. And the truth is, when we um, put our sin to death, what does that do for our assurance of faith? It, it, it gives it a boost, doesn't it? It strengthens our assurance of faith. The more we can put our sin to death, the more we are assured of our faith. And, and again, our, our assurance of faith doesn't depend on our feelings from everyday moments, right? Our assurance of, of faith depends fully and solely on Christ. But God actually wants you to taste of this assurance on this side of eternity. He wants you to know that you're saved. That's why this was written, that you know that you have eternal life. And one of the ways that we do that is by confessing our sin, turning to him daily, you know, also of note here, this is where we're going to take a couple tangents um, from those note takers among us. Also of note here is, is what he says about praying for those in sin. First, notice that our, our, our first instinct when we see each other in sin here should be to pray and trust that God will be the one that actually changes hearts and trust that he will do that. You know, how often do we pray for each other when we see someone in the church struggling with sin? Is that our first instinct? Or is our first instinct to talk to other people about it? Or do we just immediately tell that person about all the wrong things that they've done? We ought to pray. Because ultimately, it's only God who can change the, the hearts of, of man and turn us to repentance and, and bring life into our hearts and minds and lives. And of course, he wants us to use our words as well. But first, before you do anything, pray. It's such a simple thing for us. Because prayer not only changes other people's hearts, it actually changes our hearts too, doesn't it? And, and you know, when you start praying for people, one of, the, one of the tricks about praying for your enemies, you might actually 
start loving them. It's like God's tricking us to love our enemy by praying for them. But when you start praying for someone, all of a sudden your heart and your disposition towards that person starts to change too. And so when you finally do speak to that person about their struggles and their sin, you begin to speak truth and love. This is what God has revealed to you to pray for. So pray. When you see people in the church and sin, pray for them first. Second thing of note here is what he says about praying for those sinning the sin that leads to death. What does he say here? He says, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. This is a strange little aside that he makes here in scripture. Because it seems to be saying that he is saying if, if someone is speaking heresy or rejects the truth that Jesus is the son of God and the source of life, it seems to be saying that we don't have to pray for those people. This is a hard one. Because didn't Jesus pray for us when we were his enemies? Uh, and how am I to know if someone is actually sinning the way that leads to death or not? I, I don't know the hearts of man. It might not always be obvious. Also, we're called to pray for enemies that God might soften and change the hearts of stone to hearts of flesh like Jesus did for us while he was on the cross. Praying for those who persecute you. That's a command of Jesus to us. What is John getting at here in this passage? Well, just a couple thoughts on this. First thing to note is John does not forbid praying for those who are unrepentant and running after the world. Uh, I think as long as you are able to pray. But I think there actually is a kindness found here in this word. There's a kindness here in a permission to not have to pray for every unrepentant person. Because there are some people in your life maybe who have sinned so grievously against you, who have caused so much pain uh, that it, it, would, it would cause you an insane amount of pain to even petition the Lord on behalf of them. You know, as one pastor says, John isn't saying it's, it's your job to pray for everything and every person in the world. Trust the Lord with them, and other people then can take their case to the Lord. You don't have to do that for everyone. I think there's a kindness here. I also will admit this is a very confusing passage, and I think if you're gonna err on one side here, err on prayer, praying for people, praying for your enemies. And I also say if there's a specific instance or person that you're wondering about in your own life, um, talk to me about this and we can help discern together. Where scripture isn't abundantly clear, I think we should be very cautious and careful uh, in our applications. But the caution regardless here for us and for those who believe in Jesus as the son of God and giver of life is that we, although we have true belief in Jesus uh, and, and Jesus forgives all your sin, our habitual sins are the enemies to our feelings of assurance. So we need to be people who fight to put our sin to death. Right? Because the life of Christ is inside of you, this is made possible. Pray and ask others to pray. Don't go complacent about your sin because you're, you're in, right? But continue to join the work of Jesus in crushing the head of the serpent by, by working with him to root out every stranglehold that sin has in your life. And the second and final caution that we have here is a caution against idolatry. He says this at the very end. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is kind of a funny ending to the letter. At first glance, you know, he's assuring people, he's comforting them, and he says, children, keep yourselves from idols. All the best, John. <laughs> it's a strange ending. But in this final caution, um, you know, we, we, we learn that ultimately it's a statement, a caution to us to remain faithful. Because idolatry is ultimately a chasing after the desires of our own hearts, of, of thinking that something other than Jesus can give us life. And, and John has been so clear for us that life can only be found in Christ. And so he's calling us to cling to him, be faithful to him. 
said, you're going to be tempted by all sorts of things in the world, by false testimonies. I mean, you know, C.S. Lewis says that the heart is an idol factory. Keep yourself from idols. How do you do that? By rooting yourself in the the true testimony of the apostles. Because as you root yourselves and ground yourselves in the truth that's found in Scripture and the testimony of the apostles, idolatry uh, will have a hard time taking root in your life. Right? Because your eternal life is, is sure, trust Jesus for your life and worship him alone. I think ultimately the application of this is that we ought to know, we ought to read, we ought to meditate on the word of God, to be with him in prayer, to do whatever we can to make it hard for idolatry to take root in our lives, to know him, and also be a part of a, a church community like this one that practices the faith of old, the same faith practiced and taught by the apostles that, that practices word, in sacrament, it's by practicing these truths in the context of this community that, that we grow strong. That, that when idolatry comes and, and tempts us, that we can, we can more easily say, no, that's not true. This is true. Jesus is true. Commit yourself to knowing God. And as you do and as you grow in the knowledge, idolatry will not find an occasion for a foothold. And even when it does, you will be practiced in repentance. And you have a community of people praying for you, so that even when you fall into sin and idolatry, people are praying for you that you don't give yourself over to it. And he says the Lord will answer that prayer. And he will take you out of idolatry, pull you back into faithfulness and restore it in community. This is all for us because we believe that Jesus is the son of God. So in all of this, we have to take heed to John's words. If you believe in Jesus, know these truths and rest in them. John wants you and your soul to be at peace. If you believe and trust these words to be true, if you, you can have peace. And for others, it's a warning. If you don't believe that Jesus is the son of God, if you don't believe in the apostles' teaching, we also need to take heed of John's word, that life is only found in Christ. And the way to belief begins with repentance. And so the call for you is simply repent of false loves and pursuits and, and believe and cling to Christ. And walk in the knowledge of the truth, holding fast until that sweet day when we taste eternal life with our lips. Lord, haste that day. Let me pray for us. Merciful God, we give you thanks for your word. For this time meditating on your word, I pray that you would help us, that you would keep us from idols, that you would help us to walk lives full of repentance, of turning from sin and clinging to you as our only hope and source of life. May we have a a deep rest, a deep peace, knowing that our life with you is secure. Not because of our work, not because of the strength of our faith and the strength of our repentance, but by the strength of your work on our behalf. Help us to believe. Help us to trust, because we are unable to, apart from you and the work of your spirit. We pray and trust that you will do this, that you will answer this prayer, because you tell us you will. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.